I found that video to be ever so slightly relatable. Uh, if you have any form of social media, and that describes about 95% of the people that are sitting in this room, uh, chances are you've probably done some version of what we just saw in that video. Uh, it's one of the more subtle dangers of, of social media. And by the way, I, I don't think social media is a bad thing. I'm not this grumpy old curmudgeon that looks fondly back on the days of dial-up internet and flip phones. Um, I, I think that technology offers us a lot of really great things. In fact, I, I think that social media even, for example, offers us more positives than negatives. And uh, a lot of those positives I happen to take advantage of in my own life. But undeniably, one what, what of the dangers of social media is how easy it becomes to compare ourselves to other people. It's such a natural avenue to allow greed and, and envy and jealousy to find a way into our lives. And it's not exactly like it's a fair fight, right? I mean, think about it. We, we often go on to social media when we're bored, when we're not in the best of spirits. Oftentimes when we're not thinking very highly of ourselves, and then we proceed to scroll through everyone's and literally every person you have ever met. We go through everyone's highlight reel. Because see, nobody actually puts up the whole story on social media, right? We, we don't put up the entire story. We just put up the highlights. I think about my, my wife, for instance. She is constantly putting up pictures and videos of our two kids. And it's always some really heartfelt photo of, you know, my, my daughter with her arm around my son. And they're like smiling, you know, just loving life. Or there's a video of them kind of peacefully playing with one another. Never does she put up the videos, thank goodness for me, of me losing my temper because they continue to be disobedient. The, the, the pictures of, uh, of my daughter randomly just shoving my son for no reason. Th those things don't make their way onto Instagram. She never puts up a video uh, of them having complete meltdowns before nap time because they do not want to go to bed. And it's for that reason that oftentimes people say these kind of things to us all the time. I mean, this is real. They're like, oh my goodness, you have such cute kids. Do they ever do anything wrong? I'm like, are you kidding me? You should come over to my house at about 7.30 and you will see what reality looks like. It's only the good moments that find their way on there. And because we only post the highlights and because simultaneously it's so easy for us to almost exclusively focus on the negative in our own lives, it becomes very, dare I say it, natural to covet and to envy what other people have, which is what this series uh, that we are wrapping up today, uh, we're entering into part seven of seven of I don't understand what I do is all about. The, these sins, a word that a lot of us aren't necessarily comfortable with. Um, the, these character flaws that so many of us seem to struggle with, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Throughout the series, the, the question that we've been teasing out and asking is this, is why would any of us hold on to things that are holding us back? Let me think about that. Why would any of us hold on to things that are holding us back? Why don't you always do the things that you know you should do? Why don't you always not do the things that you know you probably ought not to do? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with us? For the life of me, I do not understand what I do. And so throughout this series, we, we've been taking a look at, at these sins that seem to so commonly beset us. Again, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, and began to talk practically through of, okay, how do we rid these sins from our lives? And because of the practicality of this stuff, I'd really, really encourage you, whether you've been coming to, to Grumlaw every week during this series, maybe you missed a couple weeks, maybe this is your first week here with us, we're 
so glad you walked through our doors. I'd really, really encourage you to go to grumlaw.com slash messages. Get yourself caught up there. Find us under Grumlaw Church wherever you grab your podcast. Listen to this stuff. Even more than that, implement it into your life because undeniably, it will make your life better. It will make you better at life rather than just living with it. Rather than just assuming, well, that's just who I am. These terrible excuses that we so often feed ourselves and the people around us. How about we come to grips with the fact that God has something better for you? I I talk about this all the time. Uh, This represents one of the most seminal moments in my faith journey, shoot, in my entire life for that matter. When I finally came to grips with and and understood the fact that the reason that God wants me to do certain things and the reason that he doesn't want me to do other things, the reason that he wants to change certain behaviors in my life, the reason that he wants to get rid of certain things in my life is not because he is a control freak. I'm telling you, it is so much better than that. It's because he is for you. So much so that he sent his one and his only son to die for you. He wants what is best for your life. And hopefully, you are smart enough to have figured this out by now. That that, that you're not the best version of you when you're envious, when you're greedy, when you're jealous. Whatever word happens to suit you best. And Jesus certainly knows this. And he knows this so much that, that he would often address this topic of greed and jealousy and envy, not only in the conversations that he would have with his 12 disciples, those guys that he spent virtually every waking moment with, but also among these massive crowds that would always kind of form around Jesus. In fact, on one occasion in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We often refer to them as the gospel books, which is just a cute way of saying good news. And we call those the good news because they document Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. We think that stuff is is pretty good news. And in the 20th chapter of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus tells a parable. And I'm not gonna assume that everybody knows what that is. A parable, to be clear, is a made-up story. Jesus would literally make this stuff up. But, but, but it wasn't just making it up for the sake of making it up. He would challenge people as a result of telling these, these parables to think through something in a new way. It would kind of hit them from a new angle. It would force them to kind of tackle these subjects in their lives that they never previously thought about or people previously just kind of wrote off in their minds because as soon as that topic came up, they're just like, boom, shut down. And so it's a fake story in order to make a very real, clear point. And so in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus begins to address this crowd by saying this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he sent them out to work. Now, to the original audience that would have been listening to Jesus speak here, they would have been very familiar with this situation. This is a very, very common thing back at this point in history. There would be these wealthy landowners, as it says there, that owned these massive plots of land, and typically they would have vineyards on them. And a couple of times a year where it came time to harvest the crops, they didn't have people on staff year-round. I mean, that would have been a waste of money. They would instead go to these downtown, to these marketplace areas, and pluck people who were sitting there waiting and anticipating and hoping that they would be hired by these wealthy landowners to work for a day, two days, maybe even for a week, and then they would agree to a wage and they would take them back to the vineyard. And this is exactly what this landowner is doing. It's early in the morning. Typical work day back at this point uh, in history would begin at about 6 a.m. and end at about 6 p.m., 12 hours. You think you have it bad? I bet you're not working 6 a.m. to 6 6 p.m. And so they go down there early in the morning, maybe 5, 5.30. He goes down there and he starts selecting people to go with him to work back in the vineyard. And this is really, really important to note here. They would agree. They agreed to the amount of money 
before they ever lifted a finger. That'll be an important detail as this story continues to unfold. It says at nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. I love that, that he points that out. They weren't doing jack squat. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day, so they went to work in the vineyard. Now, we're not told here, obviously, why, why this uh, landowner decides to go back and, and hire more people. Maybe he underestimated, maybe the people he hired at first weren't really good at the job, but at any rate, three hours later, after the workday has began, he goes back and he decides to hire more people. But obviously, he makes it clear to them, hey, you're not going to be paid the exact same amount of money as the individuals that started at 6 a.m. That makes sense, right? You're going to be compensated three hours less time because, again, you were working for three less hours. It continues. It says at noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the exact same thing. Now, at this point, the crowd that's listening to Jesus tell this story, they're starting to lean in. They're like, that's weird. I mean, we've heard of people going back twice. We've heard of them going back a second time, but now a third and a fourth time. I mean, what's with this guy? Does he have OCD? Is he a terrible planner? They don't really get it. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? Which would have been a painfully obvious question. I'm surprised they didn't give him a smart aleck response back. They probably assumed that he was being smart with them. And they replied very obviously, because no one hired us. What are you talking about? The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. Now, everybody that's listening to this now, again, back in his original audience is going, this is weird. Jesus, that we are tracking with you up to this point, but now you have almost made the story unbelievable because who would do this? Why would you go back? I mean, quit time was at six o'clock. Why would you hire people at five o'clock? And even those people that have been standing around all day doing nothing were probably hesitant to go out to work. So they're going, is it really worth it for just an hour? But they probably reasoned with themselves, well, I guess some work's better than no work. I guess some money is better than no money. He says, that evening he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them beginning with the last workers first. Now, come on, let's be honest. If you are one of those individuals that were hired at six o'clock, you got a problem with this. Why, why would these people who had only been at it for an hour be paid before the people that had been working since 6 a.m.? This seems like the complete opposite of what should be happening. But they don't raise too much of a fuss. I mean, they figure, I don't know, maybe to themselves, well, maybe this guy's like a youth soccer coach and he's used to like, you know, giving the third place trophy and then the second and then the first, saving the best for last. Maybe we'll even get some orange slices at the end of this. That'd be pretty great. Okay, youth soccer humor. You catch that? Okay. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. Now this would have been a showstopper. And he definitely has the attention of the crowd as they are listening to this. And the people that were hired at six o'clock have a real issue with this. They're going, what in the heck do you think you're doing paying those people for a full day's wage? And I'm telling you, even those people that were hired and worked for only an hour that are now the beneficiaries of this extreme generosity, I mean, they're approaching the foreman going, hey, you see those people behind us that are staring daggers at us? Uh, yeah, they're gonna kill us if you give us all that money. So, so why don't we just do what's fair here? Maybe you didn't get the memo. We've only been out here for an hour. We do not deserve a full day's wage. This is way too much money. But the foreman looks back at him and he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. The landowner told me very clearly this is exactly what I am supposed to do. So take your money and run. And they're looking at each other like, are you kidding me? And they head for the hills, right? They're out before the guy's gonna change his mind. They're gonna go celebrate. They don't even need to go home and, and shower. They don't need to go home and change their clothes. I mean, they hardly broke a sweat. 
They got reservations with their boys at Chili's. I mean, they are ready to celebrate because they only worked for one hour, but yet they got a full day's pay. And meanwhile, all these people that have been working their tails off for the entire day are sitting there going, what in the heck is happening right now? But then logic begins to kick in and they say to themselves, you know what? This is actually gonna be a good thing because if they just got a full day's wage for working an hour, Imagine how much money we are going to receive. And in fact, they assumed just that. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed, and rightfully so, that they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. Whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't seem right. That makes no sense. Be be honest, there isn't a person in this room right now that isn't going, you know, that just doesn't really seem to sit right with me. I I don't really like that. Why would they not be paid more if they work 12 times as long? Our internal justice meter is going all over the place. This just doesn't seem right. And in fact, you're not alone. When they received their pay, they being those that had worked all day, they protested to the owner. And now picture, I mean, they're pointing their finger into the owner's face. Those people worked only one hour and yet you have paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. We have been working our tails off. We are tired, we are ornery. We got blisters on our hands, we ruined our clothes. We gotta go pick up new shoes. We wanna go hang out with our boys at Chili's, but we gotta go home first. We gotta shower, we gotta change clothes, and by that point, we'll probably be too tired anyway. You have ruined our day. Who do you think you are? They don't like it. And if we're honest, neither do we. It's just something that, that doesn't sit right. But, but why is that? What is it inside of us that's causing every single one of us universally to almost pause, maybe even to get defensive and, and think, gosh, that just doesn't seem right. And I'll tell you why. Because it's not fair. It's our internal justice meter signaling to our brains that what we are experiencing, that what we are observing, what we are reading, what we are hearing just isn't right. Right now, every single one of us would all admit we are all on the same page. We look at this and we say, uh, I just don't like that. That's not fair. But what is that? I mean, why do we care? We can get so annoyed and so irritated and so frustrated at situations that literally have nothing to do with us. I mean, case in point, this story. I can remember studying this passage of scripture, studying this parable for the first time and getting defensive. I wanted to come to the defense of these people that had worked all day out in the scorching heat. And remember, it's a parable. By definition, it is made up. But yet there was something inside of me that was just like, "Eh, I don't like that. That wasn't fair. I mean, seriously, why is that? What is that? We can get so worked up about things that don't have a thing to do with us. What we perceive to be injustice taking place in our world. And then if it does actually directly affect us, whoo! And the words Luda, move, get out the way. Then the gloves really come flying off if it affects us or the people that we care about. We hate it when it's not fair. It drives us nuts. And what's so interesting about this, that this whole idea of it's not fair is that the vast majority of people, 
like 99.9% of the population, and I have no idea if that's actually the figure, but, but most of us, we never come to grips with this. Most, most people never even try to solve this whole greed, envy, it's not fair dilemma. Most people, in fact, don't even recognize that this is an issue. We, we, we don't even really think of it as something that needs to be solved. I mean, think about it. When we're young, our it's not fair meter is out of control. You, you could have, for instance, you know, two siblings, maybe an eight-year-old brother over here and a, and a five-year-old brother over here, right? And, and they could be peacefully playing with one another. And out of nowhere, the eight-year-old decides that he wants what the five-year-old has, and it's a little truck, right? And he decides, well, he's just going to go take it, right? And so he stands up. He marches over to the other side of the room. He rips it out of the five-year-old's hand sticks his tongue out at him, and then marches back to the other side of the room. But does the five-year-old take that? Heck no, that's his brother. Justice will be served. And so he walks back over, smacks his older brother right across the top of the head, rips that truck back. Mom steps in before this thing escalates too quickly. She looks at the eight-year-old and says, you are going to your room. You are in timeout. I saw what you did to your brother. Walks over to the five-year-old and says, you are going to your room as well. You're going to timeout. I saw you hit your brother. Dual temper tantrums, meltdown city. They're both in their rooms screaming their heads off. It's not fair. Now, those of you that, that are parents, I want you to raise your hand and keep your hands up. If you're a parent, raise your hand. Come on, participation here. If you're a parent, raise your hand. Now, now, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Now, put your hand down if your child has never thrown a temper tantrum. Liars. Yeah, okay. She said she's tired. It's 11.15, all right? You can put your hands down now. You see that? Not a single hand went down. In fact, a couple of you were like, yep, two hands up. You know what a temper tantrum is? It is a child's way of expressing that it's not fair. But does this just kind of suddenly disappear in childhood? No, not really. For those of you that have teenagers at home, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, some teenagers still throw temper tantrums. Shoot, a lot of adults still show you know, throw temper tantrums. I mean, just watch the news and you can see, you know, that happening before our very eyes. But typically, we kind of move out of this temper tantrum stage, maybe, and then we get to kind of the next stage in this whole thing, sulking. I mean, let's say, for instance, that you have like a 15-year-old daughter at home and you take little Rachel's cell phone away because she's been playing with it at school and, you know, she's been caught too many times. So you're like, that's mine now. And I mean, shoot, you take a 15-year-old girl's phone away from her, you just basically took her life away from her, right? I mean, like, it was like game over. Does she handle that well? No. Not even a little bit. I mean, she storms up, makes sure you hear every single step, and then she gets into her room. She finds a good corner in her bed. She gets into her best sulking position, which is this, by the way. And then she sits there, and she goes, it's not fair, right? And it's a meltdown for like the next hour. And we laugh at this, but again, this doesn't really go away even as we enter into adulthood. It just begins to manifest itself in other ways. And so if you're tracking with me, typically we start with temper tantrums. This is like grade school. By the time you exit elementary school, you start to graduate into sulking. That's your middle school, your high school years. And then eventually into adulthood, we get to the third and the final stage, which happens to be my personal favorite and one that you guys are all so good at. And that's this. I'm going to go, I'm going to ever so subtly treat you like crap for reasons you may not even be aware of. (laughs) It sounds funny, but we actually do this stuff. Let's say, for instance, you maybe have a high school senior uh, living under your roof, and you know, they've applied to a bunch of different schools, most notably the most prestigious university in the entire world, a little place called the University of Michigan. That's right. 
And now we got some MSU fans. I mean, you just also felt the wrath of Texas Tech. Apparently that defense is faux real. I mean, that's ridiculous. But anyway, your kid applies to U of M. You're not super optimistic, but you're hopeful, right? You, know, you got pretty good grades, pretty good ACT, pretty good SAT scores. You, you think that they're going to get in. And, and, and unbeknownst to your coworker, your coworker's child, who is also a high school senior, has also applied to the University of Michigan. And they have no idea, mind you, that your child even applied. No, no clue. And it comes to that time of year where you start to get those letters back and you kind of, you know, hopefully and anticipate, you know, you open up the mail and you see, did I get denied? Did I get accepted? And your kid got denied. Ugh, bummer. And the next day at work, you find out that your coworker's child, well, they got accepted, which is befuddling because you know your kid is so much smarter than their kid. And so what do you do? You throw a temper tantrum? No. Do you sulk? No. You ever so subtly treat them like crap. They don't even know why, but you do it. I mean, the next day that person's walking into work and you're already in the elevator and they're walking through the front door. Hey, can you hold that for me? You're like, yeah, no problem. You start firing away on that door close button. Right before they get to the door, boom, it's closed and you are off in the elevator all by yourself. Uh, whose kid's smarter now? <laughs> Maybe it's lunchtime and, you know, the same coworker is telling you like a really funny story. I mean, it's a hilarious story, but over your dead body, are you going to crack a smile? Because remember, their kid got in and your kid got denied. And so you just hold like this stone cold face. You're like, the end of the story, they're like, oh gosh. I mean, I, I kind of thought that that was pretty funny. You're like, no, I didn't think it was funny at all. In fact, I found it to be a little racist. You're like, what? What are you talking about? First of the year rolls around, you recognize that the holidays have been a little bit too good to you. You like swallowed an inner tube. You're like, my goodness, I need to take this weight off. So you commit to a diet. You commit to working out. And you again, find out through just casual conversation, there's no competition involved, but you find out that a couple of your other coworkers are also trying to scrap off a couple LBs, including Becky. And you don't really like Becky. So this irritates you. And a month into this thing, Becky has somehow lost 10 pounds. You have somehow managed to gain weight. Despite the fact that you have ate nothing but berries, dried fruit, and nuts. It's like you're shopping at the parrot section at Pet Supplies Plus. It's driving you freaking nuts. And so what do you do? You start to shun Becky. You start to treat her like crap for reasons that she is not aware of. You pass each other in the hallway. You're suddenly really interested in something on your phone. She comes out to your cubicle. She has a question for you. You got the little AirPods in. No music playing. The whole, you know, podcast, that thing turned off hours ago. You just forgot to pop those babies out. And this comes up and she asks you a question. You do this whole routine. And this sounds so ridiculous and it sounds so petty and it sounds so juvenile, but this stuff absolutely happens and it happens because it's not fair. How come their kid got accepted and mine didn't? How come it's so easy for some people to lose weight and I can't shed a pound to save my life? How come that person makes so much more money than me despite the fact that I know I work twice as hard? Well, why are their kids always so healthy and I'm rushing mine to the urgent care three times a week? Why do other people seem to have such an easier time in life than me? It's not fair. In order to deal with this whole it's not fair dilemma, I think we got to dig a little bit deeper. We, we need to try to figure out, okay, well, what's like the root issue here? Which, by the way, is what, exactly what I think Jesus was trying to pry at here as he was telling this parable. And so we're going to rabbit trail here for a second. Some of you are thinking, now the rabbit trail begins, but bear with me here. Stick with me because I, I think this is so, so important as we try to unpack this. It, it's not fair, as much as we maybe would not want to admit this, really boils down to this. I want what she has. I want what he has. You want what somebody else has. It is the grown-up way of complaining that you don't have what another person has. She didn't trip and fall on that crack. You did trip and fall on that crack. It's not fair. 
Your neighbor gets a boat. You wanted a boat. It's not fair. Their kid gets accepted. Your kid got denied. It's not fair. He gets the job. You wanted the job. It's not fair. I want what he has. I want what she has. But what is that? What is it inside of us that longs for what other people have that causes us to scream out, it's not fair? And in order to answer that question, I I think we need to come to grips with something that that is just kind of an ugly thing about us, but, but deep down, I think you know it's true. Is there something broken inside all of us? Our first reaction is almost always wrong. Now, some of you that are sitting here today, you have a growing and you have a vibrant relationship with Jesus and you have certainly moved away from this, but undeniably, this is still something that you wrestle with on a daily basis. Think about it. Why wouldn't we celebrate when someone else loses weight? Why wouldn't we be excited for that coworker whose child gets accepted to that university? Why wouldn't we get excited for that other person when they get a promotion? Well, why wouldn't we celebrate for that person who, yeah, maybe does get paid a little bit too much, but they're just the beneficiaries of their employer's generosity? Our first reaction is almost always wrong because our nature, our intuition is broken. We are inherently sinful, and this is just one of the ways that our inherently sinful nature happens to rear its ugly head. Now, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, maybe it's your first week at Grumlaw, uh, you're just kind of exploring this stuff. I, I understand that this is a tough truth to accept. I, I mean, this, this can be a really, really difficult pill to swallow. In fact, you might be looking at me right now thinking, my goodness, the arrogance of you to try to say this to a group of people of this size. Uh, and if you're one of those people, and maybe you're not convinced, I, I challenge you to just really actually think about this. Think about these scenarios, and I know that this is not just a me thing. In fact, I've confirmed it with other people because it's something that's so gross about me that, that I'm like, okay, is this just me? Like, is there seriously something like really wrong with me, or do other people seem to struggle with this as, uh, as well? We have all experienced moments like this, this, this moment that I'm about to describe here. And, and again, maybe not this exact moment, but moments like this, okay? We'll, we'll see more. Uh, let's say you come uh, across a photo of somebody uh, on Facebook, and it's actually a, a, an old friend from college, and, and you would have considered yourself really, really close to this person. I mean, you loved this person. You loved spending time with this person, and for a lot of different reasons, you know, you just kind of slowly but surely fell out of touch. Maybe they moved, you know, halfway across the country, and, you know, it just became kind of unrealistic to maintain that friendship. But if that person was standing outside Grumlaw today, I mean, you'd be like, oh my gosh, you'd be so excited to see them. And this was a nice person. They seemed to kind of go out of their way to get along with everyone and anyone. They were peaceful. They were kind. They didn't talk badly about people behind their back. This is a person that that wasn't only beautiful inside, but also on the outside. Just a physically appealing person. Physically beautiful. And you notice on this most recent picture that has come up on Facebook that this person has put on a little weight. Okay? And, and, And without any thinking whatsoever... I mean, there is zero decision-making that goes into this. It is all instinct. It is all you. There is something, and you don't say it out loud, but there is something inside of you that goes, yeah. What is that? And that kind of stuff, come on, you're not going to admit it to other people, but that kind of stuff happens all the time. And for people that you like, 
people that you genuinely care about? Is there anything that speaks more to our sinful nature than those types of moments? Is, is there anything that, that speaks to how much, how depraved we are as people than moments when we actually enjoy when other people are struggling? Well, why is it that our first reaction is to resent a person and scream, it's not fair when something good happens to them rather than celebrating with them? There's something broken inside every single one of us. See, see, envy is all about me. Contentment is all about him. Envy says, what's best for me? What's in it for me? How can this make me better? It's all about me, 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 me. Contentment takes the focus off of ourselves and it puts it on others and ultimately God. We're gonna jump back and, and wrap up this parable. If you remember, we left off with these people really angry at the landowner, pointing their finger at him, telling him, hey, this just isn't fair. And it says he answered one of them, friend, I have not been unfair, as you are accusing me of. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Didn't I give you exactly what we agreed to? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be, there's our word, jealous because I am kind to others? He's looking at him going, what's your problem? Didn't you get exactly what you agreed to? I didn't pay you a nickel less. It wasn't as if I looked at these people that had only been working an hour and I took money out of your pay and allocated it towards them. No, no, no. You got exactly what you agreed to. Why are you pounding your fist saying it's not fair? The same question is being raised that, that we just tackled. Why do we care? What is it that gets so annoyed with other people when their circumstances seem to be better than our own. And then Jesus wraps up this parable with this statement. He says, so those who are last now will be first then. And those who are first will be last. One of the incredible, incredible promises that God gives us, it's one that I latch onto daily, is that as we move towards God, he will always, always move closer to us. And as we move closer to God and our relationship, not religion, relationship with him grows, we begin to move away from what comes so natural to every single one of us. We begin to move towards where God ultimately wants to take us. Our, our nature starts to look less and less like us and more and more like him, less envy and more contentment. And no matter who you are, Come on, no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, as we've been talking about throughout this series, you know that this is a better way to live your life. L living amidst jealousy, with envy and coveting what other people have, that's not enjoyable. But that's not a good way to live. Contentment is something that we all yearn for. Universally, Christian or not, this is not a churchy thing. It's not a Christian thing. This is a human being applies to everyone thing. And those individuals that move away from greed and they move away from envy and they move away from it's not fair, you don't care about being last because after all, you are content 
because you know exactly where you stand with your creator. Come to grips with the fact that you know that there is something inside of you that is inherently broken. You come to grips with the fact that, yeah, as much as you don't like to use that word, you are sinful. That what you naturally desire is in conflict with what God ultimately desires. And the orientation of it's not fair begins to shift. John's going to play a song right now. Um, it's called Take a Moment. And the lyrics go, take a moment to remember. Uh, and I would just challenge all of us, no matter where you find again yourself in this whole faith journey, first time you've been coming here since, you know, we launched, wherever you find yourself, take a moment to truly reflect on what God has done for you to the great extent that Jesus has gone to to have a relationship with you. But a couple thousand years ago, he died on a cross for you. And I'm telling you, when you understand what Jesus did for you, it becomes a whole lot easier to be content. It becomes a whole lot easier to throw that greed and that envy to the side. Take a moment to remember who God is and who I am. There you go, lifting my load again. Take a moment to remember who God is and who I am. There you go, lifting my load again. fair as it relates to your circumstances, you become enthralled, you become engaged by the idea that when it comes to your relationship with God, there's nothing fair about it. It's not fair. I mean, think about this. The mercy that God delights in giving every single one of us. It's certainly not fair how quickly God forgives us over and over and over again. 
There's nothing fair about how, how, how incredibly patient God is with every single person in this room, with how generous he has been with all of us. It's not fair the grace that God extends. It's certainly not fair that God gives us second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and so on and so on and so on and all these chances and he's just waiting there because he's a loving father for you to go running back into his arms. And it's definitely not fair that God came down in human form, that Jesus, the Son of God, came and he died for you. When it comes to our relationship with God, there is nothing, and I mean nothing fair about it. And when we can come to grips with how incredibly unfair all of this is, then and only then can we throw our greed and our envy and our jealousy and our it's not fair meter to the side. We can shift from what comes so natural to us the greed and the envy, and we can begin to make a change towards contentment. It's not fair how much, how much God loves you, how much God loves every single person that is sitting in this room. It's almost unfathomable, it's overwhelming for me to think about the great extent that God has gone to, not to pay you back, but to win you back. It's a relationship with you so badly.